Are we wearing our masks? Yeah. <laughs> Good. Are we social distancing? Yeah. Hello, my name is Donald, and welcome to the number one media company, Worldview. At Worldview, we explore everyone's perspectives on all things that come broaden our world view. Today, we're live in the basement of Bill Gates, and we have one of his prominent supporters here, Nick Hudson. Nick Hudson is the founder of the influential and powerful organization Panda, which was created after the entire COVID situation started to fight lockdowns, vaccine mandates, all that sort of stuff. So on social media, he is known as, in some respects, as you must not be named, because if you do an interview with Nick, if it stays online, you would be lucky. And with our interview, it stayed online and it actually got 160,000 views. So if, you, if you're lucky, that happens. And it's so great to have you here, Nick. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Donald. Good to be talking to you again. So Nick, the moment I tell people I'm going to speak to Nick Hudson, they almost dismissively say, oh, you're going to speak to the actuary, the actuaris. Just for our viewers, can you just give us a brief overview? What is Panda? Who is Nick Hudson? Who is the man behind the beard? <laughs> Well, Panda is an organization of entirely multidisciplinary nature. We looked with horror as the world embarked on this crazy program of lockdowns and a, a response to the pandemic that contradicted every single standing guideline that existed anywhere in the world, including the guideline that had recently been updated in 2019. And we said we needed to do something about this, that this irrational, uh, hysterical response was something that threatened the very fabric of society. And we also observed that there was no room for grey in the discussion. Everything was being painted in black and white terms. You were either a covidiot or you were completely on board with everything that was being done. And the absence of grey and debate and engagement was striking. And so we set up Panda as an antidote to that very black and white view of the world. Uh, it's, a, it's an organization that studies the emergent data, the science, embeds it in the full political and social context. We make sure that we have scientists and, and thinkers of many stripes from all disciplines, and we debate and engage freely and invite everybody to do the same with us. Of course, one of the features of the whole uh, pandemic scenario has been something that you alluded to in your introduction, this incredible degree of censorship and cancel culture, which has really been quite extreme, so that what most people see or perceive is a very much one size, one uh, shape narrative that emanates only from government and approved, controlled mainstream media outlets. Everything else is suppressed. So we've gone on this crazy tangent with policies that contradict all guidelines and past practice and knowledge in the field of public health without any kind of real debate happening in the public square. As for who I am, I, I'm a very much an, an accidental uh, wayfarer in this whole journey. My personal point of embarkation was simply that I have had a career in problem solving and data analytics. And I tend to not get swept up in 
you know, spirit of the time stuff. And I've spent a lifetime reading the great works in literature, uh, studying. I'm a very curious person. By day, I'm an investor. I run a private equity firm and sat there at the beginning of the pandemic talking to people in my network who are similarly independently minded people and saying, this is an hysteria. There's, there's something very wrong here. The gap between the actual emergent data and the reaction in the media, on the streets, was as big as it could be. It was, it was clear that we were facing a disease of minimal implications. The virus itself is inconsequential, but it was equally clear that we were facing a policy response and an emergent hysteria that was going to be very consequential. And it was that disparity that sort of propelled me and the founders of Panda into that initial action. And we thought that we would make a few good points. We thought that if we showed people that, you know, from an actuarial perspective, from the mathematics of life expectancy and so on, that the lockdowns would be far worse than the consequences of the disease. We thought we'd make a few points like that and that people would say, oh, yes, maybe we should do a cost-benefit analysis before we shut down the world. But we were wrong. And so what I thought would be a couple of months of work has turned into two years as we began to realize that local government had actually very little to do with the determination of policies and that everything was being administered on an international level. We decided to internationalize Panda. That's been very successful. We've had mem we have members in dozens of countries now. And the organization has become more permanent with, with full-time employees and uh, regular donations from members of the public who are sympathetic to our views. And so I find myself uh, running two jobs, uh, investor by day and um, a sense-making organization by night. Uh, ironically, people are dismissive that you don't have that MD or professor title to your name, but perhaps you're the best person for this job because precisely with that actu actuary personality, you're the person to look at this objectively. Well, I don't really have an actuary personality. I, I had to abandon the field as a, as a career quite quickly because I found it painfully boring. And that's how I ended up in investing eventually. But what I do have is uh, I'm a generalist. And I also have this constant feeling of needing to remove myself from the fray, from the heat and the, the kind of um, hysteria of situations, this, this sort of continual embroidering of a very thin, insubstantial narrative into this enormous tapestry of myth and illusion that we've seen with COVID-19. At a personal level, it really comes down more to being independent, being a person who's not subject to the control of an institution or um, wor so worried about reputation that you have to give up integrity the first moment you disagree with the majority. It's been a little bit of a journey, but I don't regret any of it. And I'm very proud of what Panda has done in terms of being able to be a voice of reason in an ocean of madness. Basic principles of public health have been discarded in favor of pseudoscientific nonsense. You just have to consult basic science to realize why all of these strategies were ruled out by our prior pandemic guidelines everywhere in the world. And yet they were thrown out and discarded in favor of what is now quite clearly a political agenda. Yes. Yeah, it's great that what you and your organization has done because you're almost like a lone wolf and like 
a, a media swarm of conformist opinions. Mm. Um, okay, but Nick, let's j- jump right into it. I know you want to discuss the overall fix of the vaccine, but just to start, there's been rumors about the connection between a vaccine and heart attacks. There's some um, reports about athletes suddenly dropping ill or dead from a heart attack. There's some Many people on podcasts have discussed this subject. From Israeli National News, there's a new study. You're 133 times more likely to get myocarditis after COVID vaccination. Other side to that argument, on the Conversation website, COVID-19 is a bigger risk to the heart than the vaccination. So which one is it? Or is it it a blend between the two? Well, there's, there's no question that there has been a marked increase in myocarditis and pericarditis, but those are just two adverse events among many. And as I was listening to your question, it struck me how many presuppositions lie behind it. You know, we, we need to remember a few things. These products that everybody's been injected with are only called vaccines by virtue of a change in the definition of the term vaccine. What they were initially promised to do, which was to make people immune to this viral infection, to stop transmission, was implausible by virtue of the mechanism of action. Now, everybody says, oh, they don't stop transmission, they prevent severe disease and death, or make it less likely that you'll incur severe disease and die. But people forget that initially, the promise of the vaccines was that they were going to end the pandemic, they were gonna stop onward transmission. No biodistribution studies were done where the how, the, how the injection moves around the body, which organs it goes to. All of these basic steps that would normally be done when you launched a new class of therapies were not done. No pharmacodynamics, no pharmacokinetics. The adverse event reporting systems in America are sending the strongest signal they have ever sent by orders of magnitude, and this is not being reported. So we have this situation where the siren is going as loud as it's ever gone, there's a problem here. They cannot explain the mechanism of action because these basic steps were skipped. And we are still in the domain where people want it to be the case that you may not get onto a plane or attend a sports match or apply for a job if you haven't been injected. And even that's absurd, even if they were working, even if they were preventing transmission, that would be absurd because as in South Africa is the case, 80% of the population are already immune by virtue of prior infection. There's no reason on earth for them to be vaccinated. That is how far this hysteria has gone in upending common sense. And as I said, tearing up the fabric of our society. I've spoken to Professor Shabir Mahdi. He's the Dean of Medicine, I believe, at Wits University. And he's pro-vaccination, pro-vaccination mandate. And I told him, if you get the polio vaccine, you can't transmit the virus. He told me you can do it. And it doesn't matter with COVID, you can still transmit the virus, but that's irrelevant because you won't go to an hospital. That's the main argument for the COVID vaccine. You won't go to an hospital. It reduces hospitalization rates. Professor Marty's chair is sponsored by a vaccine stakeholder. His position exists by virtue of funding by the pharmaceutical industry. Professor Marty also knows very well that what I said just now, that people who have already been infected by COVID have immunity superior and broader and deeper and more durable than anything one of these injections can offer. 
yet he supports the mandate. He's an intelligent man, he's an educated man. The reason he won't debate or engage with me is because he knows when I sit down and say these words to him, he will be unable to produce an intelligible answer. He's under pressure, commercially, financially, to say these things, to keep on pushing the narrative that every arm of every single person in the world needs to receive one of these injections, which I refuse to call vaccines. Just to clarify, I did ask Professor Shabir Mahdi to debate Nick, but according to him, Nick doesn't refer to science. So that was his reason not to debate Nick. Our public health institutions have been captured by corporates. Our politicians all over the world are subscribing to the absolutely derisory formats of the world called the new normal and the great, great, great reset. And they've signed up for this kind of thing without our permission. Yes. They have completely avoided all democratic process. So Nick, what are some other adverse effects that the vaccine does to you? I don't know if you've seen the interview Chief Justice Mahueng Mahueng has done on ENCA, where he refers to people unable to walk after they've, done, after they've gotten a vaccine. So what are some other adverse effects that the vaccine can do to you? So the list of adverse effects that were more or less ignored in the approval process by the FDA, the Federal Drug Administration in, in the United States, is extensive. I think it totals more than a thousand recorded different types of adverse event. Yeah, so this is, this is not a short list. And they range from neurological symptoms to immunosuppression. Or there's, there's, I mean, you can imagine if the list is a thousand items long that I could talk all night about the, the items that are on that list. I do not want to overstate the case. This is not, it's clearly not the situation that everybody who receives one of these injections suddenly develops some horrible complication. But the prevalence rate of those complications is extremely high especially in the context of a disease that is of absolutely minimal risk to healthy people under the age of 70. You know, the mortality rate for somebody who's healthy and under the age of 70 and who contracts COVID is less than one in 10,000. And we've known that from very early on in the pandemic. The signs were clear in the early months. It wasn't even clear in most cases that the people who were dying, having tested positive, were actually dying because of COVID. I'll never forget seeing the Hungarian statistics and reading through the lists of deaths and the comorbidities that the people had. The, the people were almost in the morgue already. By the time they were being recorded as COVID deaths, they were you know, nursing home people. People forget the rea realities of aging and life. Aging is a brutal process. And in Canada, for example, when you enter a nursing home, your life expectancy six months. Every year, a substantial portion of the occupants of a nursing home will die. If there's whatever respiratory virus around, the chances of them dying with the virus present in their systems is pretty high. So if you went and tested all of the deaths, you would log a positive test for that virus in a fairly substantial portion of those deaths. And you'd be chalking those up at a terrible, it's only there because of this pandemic and it's what a disaster and we're all going to die unless we lock down, unless we wear our masks, unless we get vaccinated, we're all going to die. That's kind of the narrative. But the reality is that healthy people were, you know, almost entirely unaffected. There were virtually no deaths among children, yet we closed the schools. Children are not transmitters. They're too small. They don't, even if they get infected, their immune systems keep that infection at bay. They're small. They don't produce very big viral loads. They can't go on easily to infect granny and an adult. 
So what is the real death rate from vaccines? Because it's very interesting, once again, Professor Shabir Mahdi, I asked him, can you die from the vaccine? And he told me bluntly, yes, which surprised me because that's not what doctors tell you when you get the vaccine. Okay, the caveat to his answer was, the chance of you dying is very low. So you have a higher chance of dying from lightning strike than you have of dying from the vaccine. That's not true. Yeah, but okay, but I mean, even if that were true, what's frustrating is that we don't know that one, and if we knew that, we can prepare for it. I mean, you know you can die from a lightning strike. You don't know if you can die from the vaccine. It should be more common knowledge. Yeah, look, I mean, it's very difficult to assess because there's a vast effort to try and suppress the emergent story of vaccine adverse events and deaths. And that's been documented all over the world. You know, when the time series and the statistics go the wrong way, public health agencies simply drop the data series from their websites, try and make it difficult for you to access it. And this has happened in the UK, in Alberta and Canada, in Ireland. There've been a number of jurisdictions where the data that they were putting out there, when they put out the wrong story, when it's, the story started turning against the vaccines, they responded by removing the data from the website. So we operate in a sea of misinformation and it's very difficult to put a number to that. But something in the order of 500 per million doses would be not implausible at all. Okay, it could be double or quadruple that. We do not know. But what's very clear is that something is causing the mortality of people, middle-aged people, in places like the United States and Germany, where the insurance statistics are available, the all-cause mortality went up from the pandemic year of 2020 to the vaccine of 2021. Now, there could be a component of that increase in mortality that relates to the pernicious effects of lockdowns. Also, another novel intervention that we predicted would have a, an increasing effect on mortality. So there, there could be a component of that increase in mortality for middle-aged people, working-age people, that relates to lockdown, but there's no question that some of it relates to the vaccine. And remember, the vaccine doesn't prevent transmission, so you only take it to prevent severe disease and death for you. Now, if the effects of the vaccine outweigh this minuscule risk that emerges from the disease itself, it's not that they shouldn't mandate them, they should contraindicate them. Young and healthy people, people who've recovered from the disease, it should be contraindicated for them to receive the vaccine. The idea that it's like a lightning strike is ridiculous. It's much more frequent. I'm not saying that every single person who gets an injection will have some kind of adverse event. I'm, what I'm saying is that the adverse events are more frequent for huge uh, categories of people, enormous categories of people, than the problems that emerge from the, the disease itself. Take away the statistics. What is being done is wrong, no matter what the statistical result is, no matter how effective the vaccines are, no matter how deadly the disease is. A hard-earned principle of human rights, of medical ethics, is that we do not force medical treatments on people. We do not force experimental drugs on people. Precisely that relativism that you spoke about, I mean, you have to compare the deaths of the vaccine or the adverse effects of the vaccine with COVID. I mean, you, you, you can't have that absolute principle, okay, there's something wrong with COVID, now we can do everything we want yeah. or anything we want. And I mean, it's frustrating because I know, for example, there's a YouTube channel called Nisport. And there was a person on that Nisport, a person who took the vaccine and he was paralyzed from the waist down. Mm -hmm. Now, what do you tell to a person like that? Okay, you're one out of 10,000 or 100,000. 
tough luck. You, you're just, yeah, I mean, his life is ruined. I mean, you, you can't have that sort of attitude. I mean, it, 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 that, yeah, it's frustrating. Very, very frustrating, and especially for me, the, the really bitter pill is to watch these guys. We can see their conflicts of interest. We can see who pays them. It's not hidden. The newspapers never report it because they also controlled by the same you know, pots of money. And it has these real-world consequences for people all over the place. And this is true for the lockdowns and these ridiculous mask mandates. I mean, what absurdity that this idea that a little cloth mask is going to stop an airborne virus. Yeah. I mean... I, I speak, I've spoken to Professor... Okay, once Shabir Mahdi, is, he's making a lot of money from this interview. I mean, he's pro-vaccine, pro, pro-vaccine mandate, all these things. He says that these uh, one-layer masks are useless. Yeah. I mean, there you have a guy on the other side, and he says the masks are useless. So why are we still wearing these masks? It's well and good to be saying that in 2022. We were saying that in 2020, and being kicked off Twitter, suspended from social media, panned by the same newspapers who were only too eager to publish whatever nonsense and tripe in support of all these crazy propaganda and these crazy policies is part of the whole, the philosophy with which public health officials went about approaching this apparent pandemic was that they needed to maximize perceived threat. Masks did nothing to stop the virus, but they were extremely effective in reminding every single person out there on the street of the presence of this deadly virus. Because you couldn't move without seeing this reminder. It was like a bit of advertising for the virus. And so they employed their behavioral scientists, propagandists, who said, look, this is very effective. Make people do these crazy clown-like antics, sanitizing themselves and wiping down their shopping trolleys, wearing masks, so that they would, it would be impossible for even a minute while they were out and about in their normal lives for them to forget that there was a deadly virus. That was the deliberate strategy. Maximize perceived threat. And that strategy contradicted not just medical ethics, but all the principles of sound public health. Those principles would normally go about identifying risk groups, doing what you can to mitigate risk for them, placating and calming down a frightened population by pointing out to them that the risk for the majority of people was minimal, by explaining to them that there was very little that they could do to alter the risk for themselves and that all these crazy antics, the spritzing and spraying and stickers and perspex shields and masks and all this kind of nonsense would do nothing. That would be the role of sound public health. Calm people down, explain to them who is at risk, that the majority is not at risk and that you're going to focus your efforts on protecting the vulnerable instead of scaring the hell out of little kids by telling them that they're going to kill granny. I've spoken to some doctors from Zambia and they've talked about um, remdesivir. A lot of people attribute people getting COVID and ending up in the hospital, those are people dying from COVID. Mm-hmm. But these doctors and many doctors, they've realized there's some other shenanigans involved here. There's other drugs that kill the people that end up in the hospital or it's ventilators. What, what's the story there? Yeah, I mean, remdesivir is, uh, you know, the, the nurses in America call it run, death is near. It's not just the drugs that are being used. It's also this entire concept of the ventilator protocol, this idea that emerged apparently from China early on in the epidemic that what you needed to do was ventilate early and according to a certain protocol. 
Now, ventilation has never been used as a standard procedure for dealing with respiratory virus disease. So it's a very much last sort of ditch effort that's never been demonstrated to be effective. Do you think it's possible that remdesivir and the ventilators have actually killed more people than people actually dying from COVID, that it's actually a bigger threat than COVID itself, that the, the mismanagement of doctors have killed so many people that we've vastly overestimated the deaths from COVID? Yeah, I think that may be true in parts of the world. I'm not too sure how extensive the use of remdesivir and ventilators has been in South Africa, but you know we don't have st statistics on that. But if you take just maybe one step back from that immediate vicinity, the specific individual treatments you know, at the level of the individual patient and look more generally at the, the treatment meted out to society. There's no question in my mind that the policy response has been responsible for any excess deaths that there have been anywhere in the world. There was no need for any abnormal level of death in relation to this kind of outbreak. We can see that very clearly when you look at a country like Sweden, which very famously did not lock down. Over the two years of the pandemic, Sweden has negligible excess mortality. 2000, they had slightly above normal mortality, 2001, slightly below. 2019 was profoundly below normal. So they had what's known as a harvesting effect or uh, in, in a very macabre kind of actuarial way. So you see with Sweden, no mask mandates, no closed schools, no lockdowns. They had normal mortality. What kind of a pandemic does that? Well, it's a pandemic of insanity. And Sweden is the place that didn't go insane. And they didn't therefore have the deaths. Elsewhere in the world, the insane places, South Africa, the United States, many countries in Western Europe, people went stark raving mad and did things that nobody ought ever to have done. And there were deaths. Surprise, surprise. If you tell people that there's a deadly virus out there that could kill any of them, their children, that random factor. Yeah. That causes fear, morbid dread, what's known as a nocebo effect, the opposite of a placebo effect. That in itself is deadly. And that is what public health did. They went and installed morbid dread in the minds of the majority of the population, psychosed them, leading to a mass formation, kind of global hysteria. And when people are filled with fear, their cognitive capacity declines. And that's how you end up with these incredible levels of compliance. They, they, they rush to listen to whatever solution is offered to them by these corrupt public health people. And so they wear their masks. I mean, the levels of compliance around shopping centers in this kind of area, mm. at the, even now, but at the height of it was like 99%. People, it, you, they might as well have been carrying rabbit's foot, a totem, but the compliance was like universal. If you went to Kailitsha, 0%. 1% compliance. They weren't having any of this. They've heard nonsense like this from governments before. They're not having any of it. It took an elite population, a population exposed to this continual media propaganda to reach a state of such cognitive incapacity that they truly believe that a little bit of cloth over their mouths would protect them from a virus, which now you tell me, Professor Mahdi himself says is not the case. We seem to forget before COVID started that pharmaceutical companies didn't have a very good reputation. They were almost in court every day. And I mean, if, if I can just give two examples, it doesn't matter if you're anti-vax or pro-vax or middle-vax, whatever, this should shock you. And it just came actually out in the Joe Rogan podcast where he said, and they did research on this, that 75% of all advertisements on major news companies like CNN, Fox News, 
come from pharmaceutical companies. Mm. And many of these companies are loss-making companies. So essentially, pharmaceutical companies are keeping these news agencies alive. Absolutely. There was an interesting video of where they did the, the shareholding graphic of Moderna, which is obviously one of the vaccine. Before COVID started, Moderna was a loss-making company. It was losing something in excess of $7 million a year, if I'm getting that fact correctly. After COVID started, after the vaccines was initiated, it made $8 billion a year profit. So it went from 7 million loss to an 8 billion profit within the specter of a year. You don't have to be a skeptic or whatever. Something, someone made a lot of money here. It's not difficult to see that the major funders of the South African Medical Research Council, of the National Institute of Communicable Diseases, of every single major medical faculty in the country is a pharmaceutical company or a vaccine stakeholder and that anybody who raises a voice against any of those establishments is censored and silenced. This does not take rocket science. You don't have to have a science degree to see that this is sponsorship, propaganda. And yet, almost everybody fell for it. It was quite amazing. Life-changing for me, talking, talking about worldview, the name of your show. My worldview has been fundamentally altered. Yeah, so, so would one consider this a pandemic? What would be a pandemic, right? Because, I mean, the problem here is they've made so many mistakes, especially governments. Once there's actually a real pandemic, nobody's going to believe them the second time around. Yeah. So, I mean, so what, what would be a real pandemic? Was this a real pandemic? Okay, so there I believe that what's gone wrong is the people who talk up this whole notion of future pandemics and the need to conduct pandemic preparedness exercises have not studied enough evolutionary biology. We have co-evolved, we humans, have co-evolved with viruses right from the beginning of life. A constant battle or commensual relationship. By now, viruses have occupied every single conceivable niche in every ecology that ever there has been. So the idea that some new virus is going to jump out of a bat or a lab and suddenly wreak havoc in a human population is itself implausible from the start. I reject the idea that this thing that we have been through has actually been a viral pandemic. I reject the idea that there ever will be a pronounced viral pandemic. You know, we can talk about 1918 and the influenza pandemic, but we must not forget that the world had just been through one of the worst conflicts ever. Funny enough, there was also a conflict that emanated largely from propaganda. They didn't have two weeks to flatten the curve, they had two weeks to flatten the Hun. And it led to a four-year horrible war where populations were completely decimated and devastated and, and you had this destruction of the fabric of society. So you can't look at 1918 and tell me that that was a viral epidemic. That, that is to remove all of the context of the times. And since then, there, this whole industry around the pandemic was getting desperate because there were no pandemics. So the idea that we need to actually take authorities seriously in the face of viral pandemics, I would challenge fundamentally. I think it's more, more likely that you could get a dangerous bacterium, antibiotic resistant or something emerging and becoming more of a problem. And we need to come to our senses and stop these people because they're trying to alter society with this notion of pandemic preparedness. And that is, the alterations they want to make are way, way, way more dangerous 
than even the pandemic in their wildest dreams. That's how serious the situation is. And their penetration, their infiltration of the organs of state, of government, of public health, increase in leaps and bounds. We face now a situation where our own government is lining up to sign the World Health Organization Treaty, which would threaten to obliterate our own constitution. Sorry, your own constitution no longer applies, and we say, lockdown, mandate vaccinations, or force them, or treatments. They overrode the, their own viral taxonomists when they decided to describe this as a new virus. It's not a new virus. This is SARS. That did nothing in 2003, continued to do nothing for the next 20 years while it circulated freely in the world. They relabeled SARS from a taxonomic perspective, we are not dealing with a new virus. So that was the first mistake, probably a deliberate mistake. It's not deadly. They got up and said 3.4% of people who get this will die. It wasn't even close to that, 0.15%. They said lockdown. That was wrong. We could see immediately that lockdowns were having absolutely no effect on pandemic curves. They reversed their own policies with respect to cloth masks. And even in the presence of data showing clearly that the cloth masks were doing nothing. Their own study in Italy in influenza had shown that contact tracing did nothing to halt the pandemic. Their own study in Hong Kong had shown that hand washing did nothing to halt viral uh, respiratory viruses. Their own guidelines in 2019, they just rode over all of these things because it suited their industrial sponsors. And we are sitting in a situation where we are about, about to sign up to a treaty that will oblige us to do whatever they say whenever they say there is a pandemic. I see what you mean. Which, you know, which is weird because I'm listening to you. But um, so how many countries have signed onto this treaty? Not signed yet because, you know, treaties take a while to ratify and so on. Um, but it's being drafted merrily and they want it to be in full force and, um, and relevance in, I think it's June 2024. Not far away. You know, it's a blink of an eye. People are not joining the dots. People are not seeing the bigger picture that basically what's happening is a, a corrupt industry cabal, the pharmaceutical industry cabal, is very much threatening to take over our societies so that at the drop of a hat, your business can be shut down, your children can be taken out of school, you can be forced to uh, take whatever experimental medical treatment they've decided will work tomorrow and make them some money, but that's incidental. That's the world we're going into very rapidly on account of people having fallen for the propaganda. We need to all stand up to this. We need to bring legal cases, injunctions against our governments signing up to these things. They will. People are being bribed and corrupted by the process into signing these things. It's not, they're not sitting there worried about re-election because the amounts of money on offer and uh, the corruption in these industries is so off the charts that they couldn't care less. They could not care. Yeah, especially in South Africa, they're definitely not worried about re-election. Yeah. Was the South African government paid to institute a hard lockdown? Were many countries paid by the World Health Organization to institute hard lockdowns? No, they weren't paid by the World Health Organization. But the multinational organizations brought an enormous amount of pressure to bear. The World Bank, the IMF, the lending institutions were very much on the side of this narrative. Suffice it to say that governments were under enormous amount of pressure and inducement. So threat and opportunity to go along with these unprecedented policies. No, there's no doubt about that. We have to choose between a world that is inhumane, a world of technocratic control and surveillance, and the world that we prefer, 
the world of humanity, the world of human agency and bodily integrity. So join me in saying no to this nonsense. Every single one of those doctors, before COVID started, if you'd gone to them and said, listen, I've just recovered from this disease, do you think, whatever disease you're talking about, just recovered from this disease, do you think I should be vaccinated? They would have laughed at you and said, no, don't be ridiculous. You're, you've recovered. You've got an, your immune system knows how to deal with it. What's changed? <laughs> you know, now all of a sudden those same doctors are telling everybody to, to get vaccinated and carry on getting vaccinated with a vaccine that they do not know how it behaves. They don't, do not know what that vaccine does in the human body. You can challenge them. Please, doctor, would you show me the scientific paper upon which you are basing your assertion that this thing is safe? Because I cannot find anything that describes the pharmacodynamics of this vaccine. Can you please show me that paper? They can't show you that paper. None of them have done the basic science reading. None of them. They're all completely infused by the propaganda of the pharmaceutical companies which have sponsored their university faculties that they studied at. The level of marketing directed at doctors by pharmaceutical companies, these little reps who run around doing the little song and dance in the miniskirt and offering the doctor an incentive trip to the Kruger Park or whatever, if he uses the statins or the... It is off the charts what goes on there. And it's gone on for decades. We're talking about a systemic program of the capturing of medical science over about 50 years. This kind of stuff started in the 1970s. The regulations were eroded. Big erosion took place under the Reagan administration in the 1980s in America. There's been a systematic erosion of the protections that were set up to keep medicine in tune with the Hippocratic Oath and these time-honored principles that separated the functions of public health from politics. I believe that a lot of those doctors, they probably think of themselves as trying to do good in the world, that they're actually there to help their patients, but I don't think they realize the extent to which their own cognitive processes have been distorted by this constant barrage of advertising, of propaganda, of public relations, of marketing that's been thrown their way over the years. That probably doesn't even occur to them that in 2019, they would readily have said to somebody, you never take a vaccine for a disease you've already had, don't be silly. That would have come off their lips very quickly. And all of a sudden now, they're telling everybody to get vaccinated, even if they've only just recovered. So, you know, that's, that's how severe the dissonance is. I would just say to you, no, I mean, you, you've, you've already recovered. You should never have taken one shot, let alone three. Okay, now, for example, I know one person that apparently, yeah, I, know that, I don't know the full details, but he died from COVID mm-hmm. in the northern provinces. And his his arms rot, and it's a strange situation, his feet rot, and he eventually died from COVID. They had to literally cut out his arms to prevent the situation. Was this, is this a rare case? Might have been that drug you mentioned, might have been ventilators, or for example, a person looks at that and think, I don't want that to happen to me, I need to get the vaccine. So I mean, there's definitely some families who've experienced something yeah. in the past two, three years, they're terrified of that happening to me, Suddenly, I'm okay, I'm dropping dead. So they're going for the vaccine. So, I mean, was this just a rare case or? The first thing, I mean, that's quite obvious is rotting arms and legs are not a feature of COVID. But taking a step back, the the thing that everybody's forgotten in this process is that in a normal year around the world, roughly 80 million people die. So in the two years since the uh, that we've had covering the, the COVID hysteria. The normal number of deaths is, give or take, 160 million, 200 million people, you know, this, this time period would, would normally have died. Death is part of life. 
And what's been cleverly and devilishly exploited is that that normal process of life and death has been turned into a bogeyman and everybody attributes every death to COVID, this deadly virus, and unless you get the vaccine and lockdown and wear masks, you're going to get it and die. So there's been a gross distortion of our perceptions of risk and danger. What I invite people to consider who are in the grips of this insanity is whether by going along with the lockdowns, with the social distancing, with the shutdown of arts and schools and society in general, what exactly is it that they want to keep their heart beating for and that have been the product of eons of biological and cultural evolution? We now shut them down for fear of this phantom. That is the real essence of this, to, to be persuaded into a position of permanent fear and into the position of launching a whole lot of interventions in your own life and the taking of experimental injections and all this kind of stuff. We need to find the normal reservoirs of courage, of, of spiritedness in our lives that allow us to deal with a certain amount of risk, to acknowledge that risk is ever-present and proceed about the world. Is there ivermectin in the vaccine? Because I've heard rumors they wanted to re-trademark ivermectin because they realized it's successful, so that they put it in the vaccine. Is there any truth to this? So I, I would regard that as uh, very unlikely to be true. I'm skeptical about any claims regarding efficacy in the context of COVID because it is such low risk for healthy people that it's almost impossible to demonstrate efficacy. You can't show a reduction in death rate if the death rate is almost zero already. You have to have millions of people and on your trial. And tests are so in inaccurate anyway. Yes. The bottom line is that you don't need any treatment whatsoever for most people on the planet. You don't need any measure. Just simple advice to people to stay healthy, which has nothing to do with COVID or any other virus. Just stay healthy. Exercise, get sunlight, eat a balanced diet, do things to monitor your stress. Don't get too obsessed about earning money because it's going to lead you down a consumer stressful existence. You know, just, just basic mes messages of ethics and virtue that, <laughs> that we should be concentrating on. Forget the ivermectin for 40-year-olds. Just, just stop it. Stop the madness. But I'm, I'm 48 and I had COVID. I was like desperate to stay away from any intervention. I don't, I, I'm fine. I'm going to feel bad and get man flu for a day. And then I'm going to get up and I'm going to go for a run. And everybody must just back off. That's what I wanted to say. But I was under a lot of pressure because of my position in Panda. Nick, if you end up in hospital, yeah, it's going to be so very embarrassing for all of us. Uh, so take your ivermectin. Take your vitamin D supplements and all of that. And so I sort of kind of went along with it because I felt bad. But I did it for a day and then I stopped. I never told them. Well, no, I suppose I have. But, um, <laughs> but I never, you know, I, I, I couldn't bear it. Chugging all these tablets and everything. And all I, I know, I just need to go up in the mountain with my shirt off and I've got some vitamin D. It's fine. Plus, pick up some girls on the way. You know. <laughs> Nick, if you want to add something or to answer a question that I didn't ask you that you feel the, the audience, the viewers should know about. We have a document called 20 Lies, which... We actually just had to, it's not that they're only 20 lies, we just stopped there for the purposes of the document. We could make that 100 lies. This whole thing is a narrative construct. The more people accept that, I think the faster we get to the point where we can actually press back against the, the much larger political agenda that is behind this and other propagandized narratives. Thank you, Nick. Thank you so much for watching this video. Show your appreciation by liking this video, subscribing to our channel and sharing as widely as possible. My name is Donald and you've been watching Worldview.